All right. Hey. Um, well, welcome tonight. Thanks for coming to the lecture tonight with Dr. Blomberg. Uh, I'm Elliot. I'm the middle school guy here at Waterstone, which is unimportant. Um, the reason I'm introducing Dr. Blomberg is because I'm a um, uh, former student of his. So he was a um, professor of mine at Denver Seminary. One of the reasons why I am glad to be able to introduce him to you is so that, one, you have an idea of who you're going to listen to for the next uh, however long it might be, an hour, an hour and a half. Um, but two, uh, because I probably have also a different view than if you were to read his bio on Denver Seminary's page. So real quick, kind of the, the facts on Dr. Blomberg, who you're about to listen to. Uh, he got his Ph.D. in New Testament at Aberdeen in Scotland, um, and he's been on Denver Seminary staff since 1986. So he's actually our distinguished professor in New Testament studies. So when it comes to New Testament um, at Denver Seminary, he's really the guy to look to, um, really, when it comes to New Testament um, theologically in, in the evangelical world. He also is the guy to look to, but more about that in a sec. He's written prolifically in professional journals, dictionaries, and encyclopedias. Um, so if you wonder who writes your encyclopedia, uh, if you're looking up something theological, it's literally probably the guy you're about to listen to. Uh, and then he's authored and edited over 20 books, um, the least of which are not um, reliability of the Gospels. The, I'm sorry, the historical reliability of the Gospels. Most recently, the historical reliability of the New Testament at large. And also about a year ago, he published a book that's uh, fairly digestible called Should We Still or Can We Still Believe the Bible? Um, Outside of that, if anyone reads the NIV, um, so you open up your Bible, and it's a new international version. Dr. Blomberg was also one of the heads who um, chaired that committee and helped edit that. So I want to be careful not to say he wrote that version, so, uh, so he or I don't get lightning bolts right now. But, um, but genuinely, if you, if you are familiar with the NIV, uh, Dr. Blomberg's hands were, were part uh, heavily part of translating that as accurately uh, as possible into um, English. So uh, outside of that, though, I think that was the bulk of what I wanted to get out. The pieces that you wouldn't be able to read online and the pieces that he doesn't know I'm about to share either um, <laughs> is that Dr. Blomberg uh, is, is easily, arguably, the most distinguished and, and recognizable and renowned scholar that Denver Seminary has. And we have several, um, but I would argue that Dr. Blomberg, from other uh, academics who I've spoken with, not students, would, would point to Dr. Blomberg as, um, as perhaps the foremost. Secondly, um, he is by far an academic and someone who thrives in the academy, but as his life will show, and his wife, who is a pastor for years and years and years, and they are very plugged into the church that they attend downtown, he is at heart also a churchman. And um, I will say, uh, seldomly do you find someone who thrives in the academy like a fish in water and also has a heart for practical ministry purposes uh, in the church. Sincerely, truly, that is Dr. Plomberg uh, in a nutshell. So would you please join me in welcoming him tonight? Well, let's see. What do I need to correct? Um, <laughs> I never chaired the committee. Uh, I'm just on it uh, for the NIV, and I've only been on it for 10 years. So unless you have the 2011 edition, I had nothing whatsoever to do with it. <laughs> I mean, to have been on the original committee, you had to have been a fairly renowned scholar by the late 1960s, and I was still in junior high then. So <laughs> um, most of those men, alas, are with the Lord. Well, I guess that's good. Um, but I guess uh, staying in one place, uh, 
can have its advantages. Um, your senior pastor still has me by two years. Uh, I think he started in ministry in 84 and I came here in 86, but uh, first five years in town, we were part of Bear Valley and heard all about this young guy who was starting a spin-off called Nick Lillo. And I realized once again how old I was yesterday when a guy walked up to me in our student center and, and said, uh, I think you know my dad pretty well. <laughs> and his name was Jeff Renault. And, uh, <laughs> and he's a student and it's like, I taught your dad when I started. <laughs> so, um, Waterstone in its several iterations. Uh, I was telling one person about once every five years I get invited to do something here and it's never the same thing twice. So uh, this is fun, thanks for coming out. And uh, if your big thing was loneliness last week, this isn't gonna help. <laughs> um, <laughs> if, uh, I, I, I need uh, in uh, that tiny little white space for anybody who's so old school that you actually still like to take notes with a pen or a pencil on a piece of hard copy paper. I still dream there might be three of you here who do. Um, <laughs> this is all still introduction. <laughs> I was... Uh, talking on this identical topic two weekends ago uh, at uh, some very good friends church that I go all the way back to college with in Fort Dodge, Iowa. And uh, got to the end and, and uh, one of the first persons to ask a question said, well, I guess this isn't really a question. I guess it's a statement. And I always get nervous when Somebody starts off that way. And he said, I find that uh, you can have all the answers to all kinds of hard questions that people ask, but what really makes a difference is if you just love them. He didn't come out and say it in so many words, but he, he was basically saying, your talk was nice, but it was irrelevant. And my response, as, as affirming as I could be, was absolutely, absolutely you've got to love them. Um, for those of you who have heard of Scum of the Earth Church uh, downtown, it's where my wife and I have been for the last uh, um, 12 years now, and it is amazing the number of young adults we get, um, some of whom come from a church background, and more often than not, as you start to ask, not necessarily of the name of the church and its address, and it's not necessarily in Denver, but part of their story is when I was in high school, when I was a teenager, I asked my pastor, I asked my youth leader some hard questions about faith, about the Bible whether you can believe it, whether Jesus even existed, whether you, if he did, whether you can know who he was. And all they told me was just believe, 
you're just showing a lack of faith. You've got to believe. And that just told me that they didn't have any answers. And that made me doubt all the more. So um, tonight's talk will not help anybody wrestling with loneliness. <laughs> um, it will not help anybody trying to decide if they want to get remarried. <laughs> it will not address a whole host of very pressing life questions that might be the most important thing in your life right now. Um, and they will not be a package of things to dump on your doubting or unsaved friends as an automatic uh, key to bringing them to faith. But over the centuries, there has been a significant minority of people who have had genuine doubts, genuine questions. And of course the Spirit of God has to be involved in bringing anybody to himself. And of course we have to uh, be loving in our relationships. And if you scream about the love of God, it, it just doesn't feel right, and I've heard pastors do that, <laughs> most of them further south. Um, <laughs> but I'm not prejudiced. Um, I just am a Yankee, uh, and, but not in baseball affiliation, no. Um, in fact, any team I'm interested in is now out. Uh, <laughs> well, the Cubs are almost Rats. What was I talking about? Um, <laughs> it's been incredibly encouraging over the years to have people come to seminary, to have people come up to me in local churches after talks like this, to have people email me completely out of the blue and say, you wrote something in one of your books, or actually more often, Lee Strobel in his interview of you in Case for Christ wrote something about you. I'm convinced more people have read his first book, Case for Christ, than everything I've written put together. He knew what he was doing and reached a, a market remarkably. And that thing was pretty instrumental in bringing me to the Lord, or bringing me back from being very uncertain about my faith. That happens to me once every three months, I'll uh, never retire. <laughs> <laughs> so in the next, uh, gosh, Larry said we've got until 8 o'clock. I am going to try really hard not to talk for more than maybe 50 minutes at the most which means we'll have a good 25 minutes for questions and uh, you can talk about what we introduced. You can talk about stuff we didn't talk about that's related. Just don't ask me about the Broncos. I don't get it. <laughs> um, <laughs> question should probably be on topic, but other than that, uh, 
will go wherever you want. Ours is a day and age if you pay any attention to the debates going on online in the blog world um, among high schools, colleges, universities where there is less general belief in this country in the reliability of the Bible than probably at any time since we became a country. And there have been no new discoveries to make that understandable. There have just been lots of spins put on things that weren't nearly as common in other years. So I should have brought a hat with me, um, but I didn't. It was still pretty warm out. Um, so I want you to look at my head, not too carefully, and imagine an invisible Christian hat. And I'm going to take it off, put it next to this Bible, remind me to put it back on when we're done. And I am not going to attempt to prove to you the inerrancy of Genesis to Revelation as if anyone could in the first place. I am not going to try to convince you of the reliability of every detail just in the four Gospels. But I believe, and I could cite a good <coughs> representative cross-section of not just evangelical scholars, but quite a few middle-of-the-road scholars as well. Um, the far left would not agree with me, but a pretty good cross-section of New Testament scholars worldwide who would agree with something like the 12 points, good biblical apostolic number, uh, for supporting the general <coughs> reliability of the Gospels. And did, did we give all, is there anybody? I see a couple up here who came in. Um, I see a lady here who needs one. Those of you that have been drifting in, it'd be great if everybody could have a handout to follow along. Raise your hand if you're willing to admit that you want Larry to give you one. <laughs> And it's probably good at the outset to remind ourselves that uh, what we're talking about is not Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as it looks in the NIV or any other modern English or other language edition. Um, we're talking about ancient manuscripts, sometimes in very fragmentary form, sometimes more complete form. The oldest manuscripts were written in all capital Greek letters. If you can see that at all from a distance um, and are wondering, is it just that I can't see the spaces and the punctuation and the lowercase letters? <laughs> no, your eyesight's fine. Um, 
it, that's how people wrote. And uh, when you grow up, if you learn to read, uh, you can make sense of it. Eventually, people did develop lowercase writing, but there's a few places where you can see a dot here and there at the end of a sentence, but still it's not like we would uh, uh, perhaps wish it were if we were reading it. Um, well, let's go back to the pretty picture for a moment. There is all kinds of, <laughs> well, in the last two years or so, now we've got a new term for it, fake news. <laughs> um, which I suppose is a, a nicer and more polite way of saying, there are websites all over the place that lie to you, bald-faced lies. I hope there's no one here who finds that a shock and new news. Um, <laughs> there's also a ton of good stuff you can find online, but I, 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 I still am amazed when I meet an adult who's at least middle age or beyond who says, well, I read it online, <laughs> as if that alone made something true. Um, we're trying to teach our kids how to test things. And you'll, you'll see people who say, there's no evidence for the existence of Jesus. Flat out false. We'll come to that before our time's up. You'll see people who say, oh, the, the manuscripts were hopelessly corrupted as they were copied and copied and copied and copied and copied. It's just not true. Um, we have over 5,700 ancient Greek manuscripts of part or all of the New Testament, and the Gospels are as well represented among those as any part of the New Testament. And in the ancient world, it was costly enough and time-consuming enough, and it required people who were literate, which were not the majority of the population by any means, that uh, scrolls and then later books in what were called codex form uh, were meant to be preserved. There was a man named George Houston just a few years ago who, who did uh, an amazing study of ancient libraries in the old Roman Empire. The average book remained in circulation, which might mean somebody checked it out once every five years. I mean, mostly libraries were places to preserve material, though there were people who could borrow, for 150 years. The more valuable and treasured documents lasted longer. Codex Vaticanus, you might guess it's preserved in the Vatican, um, written in the 300s, was re-inked for continuing use 500 years later. We do not believe that we have 
even in a small fragment, an original of any book in the New Testament. If you read Bart Ehrman, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, who has made it his life's uh, ambition to disabuse as many people of faith as much as I try to defend it, he'll say, we don't have the originals. We don't have copies of the originals. We don't have copies of copies of the originals. We don't have copies of copies of copies of the originals. As if every 10 years something wore out and had to be recopied or repurchased like we might do with a paperback. There is a very good chance that we have in museums and libraries in Europe and in the Middle East, copies of the originals. Only one scribe removed. Trouble is, we don't know which ones they are, if they are. <laughs> don't have the ability to date to recover that. But we're not talking about the process that so many people think of. Bart Ehrman says there may be 400,000 variants out there. There may be. Spread over 25,000 copies in Greek, Latin, Old Slavonic, Armenian, Coptic, Egyptian, Ethiopic, Syrian, and other languages that we all know and love. Not. <laughs> which means about 16 unique variants per manuscript, the vast majority of which are variations in spelling of a word and make no difference whatsoever as to the meaning of the text. And the next most common, which are <coughs> the presence of an a uh, or a the or an and or a but or a word order where again, <coughs> The meaning is completely unaffected. If you come to Denver Seminary and enroll in a degree that requires you to learn a little Greek, not just the one at the corner store, um, you'll read an edition of the Greek New Testament with about 1,400 textual variants that are interesting enough to even note. That's a lot smaller number than 400,000. If you have an average English translation and different translations, put in more, but on average you'll have about 400 footnotes. I hope you look at the footnotes. If you only use a Bible on a phone, they're supposed to have the footnotes, but a lot of times they're hidden, so you better find out where they are so you can see them. And then you don't have to take my word for it. Um, there is not a single doctrine or ethical practice of the Christian faith that depends solely on a passage in the New Testament where there's a serious question as to what the writer originally wrote. But we don't want to make too much of this. I've heard people um, just within the last year in the Denver metro area at churches some of you would have heard of, so I'll stop at this point. Say, you know, Craig, what really impresses me is, is this manuscript evidence. 
How could it not be true? Whoa, time out. Just because I know what somebody wrote has nothing whatsoever to do with whether it's true or not. I could know with complete accuracy what Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey said, and that doesn't make it true. It just means I know what they wrote. So then I have to go on and ask other kinds of questions. If I don't have any confidence that I can reconstruct at all close to what somebody first wrote, then it probably doesn't matter to even ask the question of truth. Because who knows if you're evaluating the, the original thing or not. So this is, there's a reason that this is the first argument. So how do you answer the truth question? Wearing my historian's, well, I should have brought two hats. Then I could have put on my historian's hat. Well, let me do that one also. Can you see it? That one was red. This one is green. No relation to the matrix. Um, or were they red and blue? I can't remember. What were the buttons? Red and blue. Yeah, right. Red and green's Christmas. That's right. <laughs> um, that's been a few years ago, The Matrix. Yeah, I haven't watched that in a while. Who wrote an ancient text? And were they in a position to be able to record accurate information? The question of the authorship of the four Gospels. No Gospel manuscript that we know of from the ancient world in the text itself says, I, Mark, am writing to you the way Paul does in his letters or other New Testament writers do. We have titles, the gospel according to so-and-so. Probably not likely that four writers independently of each other all decided on the same name, the gospel according to me. Um, that was, those were probably headings that were put in when the four were first collected into a, a collection of four. But there is unanimous tradition, evidence, witness from second, third century Christians that Mark was the John Mark of the book of Acts and who's mentioned at the end of 1 Peter and who's mentioned in a couple of the letters of Paul. And probably the thing he's best known for is abandoning Paul and Barnabas halfway into their first missionary journey. Probably not the kind of person you would pick if you were just inventing a name trying to give it credibility and authority. Luke has nothing against him in ancient tradition. Uh, the early church said he is, uh, what again, at the end of one of Paul's letters in King James English, Paul called him his beloved physician. We might say my favorite doc, I don't know. But he's a pretty obscure character. He's, neither of these are among the 12 apostles. Neither are in the next tier of well-known and 
well-publicized Christian leaders. Not, not the kind of person you'd expect if I were writing, as people later did, an apocryphal gospel and trying to pawn it off as something authentic. Matthew was one of the 12, but <coughs> he had been a tax collector, a Jew working for the hated occupying Roman troops, uh, maybe next only to Judas Iscariot, not somebody you'd pick. Really the only one that makes sense, if the Gospels were fictional, would be John, the beloved disciple, one of the inner group of the three lead apostles along with Peter and his brother James. Now, modern scholars have, for a whole variety of reasons, raised serious questions. At least more liberal scholars have raised serious questions. Are these the right people? And if this were a, a semester-long seminary class, we'd take the time, a little bit, to go into those debates. It's not. I promised you a time limit. You're holding me to it. Or you're sitting there thinking, there's no way. <laughs> so I'll say, irrespective of that debate, this second issue is tied very closely into the third, which is yet another question that historians classically ask about an ancient text. When was it written in respect to the people and incidents that it narrates? And again, there's a debate. More conservative scholars will put Mark to the late 50s or early 60s, Matthew, the early 60s, Luke, the early 60s, John, the 80s or 90s. This isn't the 1950s, 60s. This is just the 50s, 60s, first century. More liberal scholars will put Mark in the late 60s, early 70s, Matthew and Luke into the 80s. Hey, we almost agree with John, probably into the 90s. Fascinating topic if you're a nerd like me in this debate. But not tonight. The important thing is, Jesus was crucified, most likely in AD 30. Some people would date it to 33, which would make it even better. That's 30 to 60 years, one to two generations after the events that took place which by ancient standards in an oral culture where most people were illiterate, and even if you kept written records, they wouldn't be able to read it, they could just hear it read aloud, is a remarkably short period of time. Alexander the Great, and that was not his last name, historian <laughs> later gave that to him, um, <laughs> died in 323 BC. The fullest biographies that we have of him that writers of world civilization textbooks rely on come from the end of the first and the beginning of the second century AD. That's over 400 years. And where those writers agree 
people pretty much trust them and have good reason to. In comparison, the period of time with the Gospels is remarkably short. But someone might say, aren't you assuming that the Gospel writers wanted to preserve accurate history? That they had some kind of historical intent? Didn't the apostles, the first generation of Christians, think that Jesus might come back in their lifetime? Yeah, some of them did. Some of them interpreted some of Jesus' statements to mean that. Others realized Jesus never said that in so many words. That was a misinterpretation. But even if I just think the world is likely to end very soon, am I going to take the time and money and effort to chronicle the history of the foundation of this fledgling movement? Well, maybe. There were a group of Jews known as Essenes who uh, produced something called the Dead Sea Scrolls at a monastic-like community on the shores of the Dead Sea called Qumran who had been around since about 200 BC and they were finally massacred in the war with Rome in AD 70. But from the very beginning of the movement, their leadership believed the world might end in our lifetime. And yet we can piece together a history of their movement for over 250 years. Because nobody ever said, what Harold Camping did in 2011. <laughs> it is going to happen on this date. <laughs> or whoever this guy was more recently. Um, didn't get quite as much press, thankfully, but uh, he was still wrong. Or, and this is the more common complaint, doesn't a theological intent inevitably skew history? If I am strongly committed, <laughs> dare I raise politics, to an unnamed political party, it works with both of them. <laughs> and I am so committed to getting everybody to get on my side. I might write the history of America slightly differently than the person who's equally strongly committed on the other side. Maybe just in terms of what I selected and what I emphasized. But I might actually skew it to try to work in my favor. There's no doubt that can happen. But sometimes the very nature of the ideology or theology to which people are committed is such that it makes it important for them to tell the story straight. And the most famous example of the last hundred years is after World War II, after the Holocaust that killed six million Jews. It was, in many cases, faithful, believing Jewish scholars that had to have been incredibly depressing, who tracked down every record, every 
artifact, every remain that they, remains that they could of the Jews who had died to preserve it so that crazy people like Ahmadinejad a few years ago in Iran couldn't with any credibility say, oh, it never really happened or it just involved a few people. Getting the story straight was crucial to their cause, that such atrocities never again happen, if at all possible. The center of the Christian claim was that a man was resurrected from the dead, Jesus of Nazareth. That's an uphill battle from day one. I always get a kick out of the people that say, well, you know, people didn't understand science back then the way we do. That's true, but they knew that dead men and women stayed dead. <laughs> they knew that 15, 16-year-old girls that came home pregnant had a guy in their life. Um, virgin births were no more believable in the first century than in our century. Maybe there were some other things they were more gullible about, but, but not, not that kind of stuff. At the heart of the gospel message is the theme of truth. They would have been discredited from the outset if they had in any significant way fabricated history. But it's one thing to want to write accurate history. It's something quite different to be able to actually pull it off. We don't have four identical Gospels. If we did, there wouldn't be any point. <laughs> We'd only need one. And there are interesting differences among the Gospel parallels. But uh, we need to realize that ancient Judaism, Greek and Roman cultures, other surrounding people groups had what some modern scholars have called the concept of a guarded tradition. Or on your handout, I say ancient cultures meticulously cultivated the art of memorization. School, which was just for boys and lasted for most boys from about ages five to 13, and then you took up a trade, went to work because you were grown up. Well, lifespans were shorter too. Involved for Jews, one subject, the Bible. Because the Bible, people believe, taught on any topic imaginable. If it didn't, obviously, somebody found it hidden there allegorically. <laughs> Don't recommend the way they did it all the time. But. And there was one major teaching method, rote memory. Still is in parts of Africa, Asia, Middle East, and South America. 
where modern Western education hasn't corrupted, I, I mean hasn't had, <laughs> had an effect. The rabbis had a tradition that until every boy in class had a particular passage memorized and could say it out loud without making a single mistake, there was no point in talking about it or discussing it because you might not be representing it accurately. Wouldn't it be great if we could recover that? No, probably not going to happen. Not in a, a world of print, real or virtual. Some rabbis who went on to seminary, aka they studied with a venerable rabbi from maybe ages 14 to 18 or so, sometimes had the Hebrew scriptures. That's the whole Old Testament committed to memory. Occasionally they still do. Two of us on staff were in Israel back in 2012 and met a modern Israeli Orthodox rabbi. You, you give him a passage, he could quote it. You start at age three, <laughs> whether you want to or not. You learn it throughout life, you repeat it, you apply it, you study it, you repeat it, you sing it, you chant it, you put it to rhythm. My girls, I think, would have made good ancient rabbis, but they would have been forbidden because <laughs> of their gender. When Rachel was in middle school and Beth was in high school, and I checked with them because I suspected it, and, and I didn't want to just believe it and then start telling groups about it if it wasn't true, had the music and words completely committed to memory of the CDs for Man of La Mancha, Phantom of the Opera, Les Mis, and the collected works of Veggie Tales. <laughs> and neither of them ever sat down intentionally to memorize a single word. But I'll tell you, it was quite a while after they moved out of the house before I could play those tapes again and enjoy them. <laughs> because we heard them over and over and over. In comparison, a gospel, the longest gospel is Luke's, not even 20,000 words, well over 100,000 in the Old Testament. It was quite literally child's play. But what about all the differences? <laughs> Something besides just memorization was going on. Well, those of you who are statisticians or engineers, you'll like this chart. Those of you who are right-brained will go to sleep. A um, hundred years ago, an Englishman by the name of B.H. Streeter put together what remains the classic, not the only, but the classic solution to the synoptic problem, which is the question of, given that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the three synoptic gospels that can be put together in a synopsis, because they're more similar than dissimilar, have, well, out of the uh, 
661 verses in Mark. Um, and out of the 10,068 verses in Matthew, and out of the 1,100, 1,068 verses in Matthew, I can count, I really can. 1,149 in Luke. Um, 333 are unique to Matthew. 564 are unique to Luke. 235 are found in both Matthew and Luke, but not in Mark. And almost all of the 600, more than 90% of the 661 verses in Mark are repeated in Matthew and Luke. If anything even remotely close to that happened with three of my students, it would be beyond a shadow of a doubt that somebody copied from somebody. <laughs> and the most common explanation, for a whole lot of reasons we can go into later if you're interested, is that Mark was written first, Matthew and Luke both relied on Mark, and maybe had a list of the best teachings of Jesus that Mark hadn't included that they added, as well as some other things unique to their Gospels. And before Streeter, there was a German, in fact, some of you will recognize the name of Friedrich Schleiermacher, if you ever studied philosophy, who said, it's the first one we know of to suggest that Matthew and Luke had this collection of Jesus' teachings. And he said, we don't know what it's called, let's just call it source. And the German word for source is quella. Well, let's just abbreviate and call it Q. This has nothing to do with James Bond. This has <laughs> nothing to do with any mystery novel. Um, has nothing to do with a conference that's coming to Denver in November. Um, that's spelled C-U-E. But um, there is most likely a literary relationship among the Gospels. But then there is also the patterns of passing on sacred or epic stories by word of mouth, where storytellers in many pre-literate or semi-literate communities had what uh, has been called flexible transmission with fixed limits. Uh, a man by the name of Ken Bailey calls it informal controlled tradition. You don't have to say everything every time you tell the story. You don't have to say it word for word even if you have it memorized. There is a certain amount of freedom to, depending on the occasion and the purpose for the community gathering, to tell this part or that part to abbreviate one part, to slow down and give more detail in someplace else. And this is a world that hasn't even invented the quotation mark. Don't ever be misled when you see quotation marks in English Bibles that those are anything other than committees saying, yeah, it looks like this is where somebody started to talk. And here's where it looks like they stopped. 
And it does not mean that we necessarily have verbatim quotation for one thing. In Jesus' case, he spoke Aramaic. Gospels are in, in, written in Greek. Somebody had to translate. Set two people who know Spanish to translate the same document. It's not going to come out word for word the same because there are ways you can say things differently. That kind of thing appears in the Gospels. And then there is quite recently, the very interesting phenomenon of social memory. I don't know if Larry and Nick do this here. Way back in the day, in the old Bear Valley, there was such a shared history. To this day, and I haven't done this every time I speak in front of a group, but I could tell you the story of how a young pastor by the name of Frank Tillipaw came upon this Southern Baptist mission church with about 50 people. It wasn't growing, it wasn't growing. People invited him to be the senior pastor and he said, I'll do it on one condition that we abolish every committee except the deacon board. And we put people to work outside of the church and he developed the slogan, A Heart for the City. And uh, he preached on that theme over and over again. And as a result, although not necessarily the people that currently run them, but city missions today, like the Inner City Health Center and Neighborhood Ministries and Open Door Fellowship and Mile High Ministries and the Providence House Network and Alternative Pregnancy Centers, and I know I'm missing some of the uh, Denver Street School were all birthed by people inspired by Bear Valley Church in the 1980s. And when I went there, almost anybody who had been at the church for any period of time could have stood up and spontaneously said what I just said. Because we heard it over and over and over again. The joke was Frank could take a text in the Psalms that had nothing whatsoever to do with city ministry and find a way to make it relate and tell the story. So when a story is retold over and over again publicly, people remember it and they get it right. Bart Ehrman likes to say that the tradition was like one person whispering complex sentence or two in somebody's ear who then whispers it to the next person and on and on around the room and we all laugh at what it comes out of. That isn't remotely like what anybody we know of in the ancient world ever did. You could not pick a more misleading analogy. It was done in public. It was done with others present who knew the story, who had the right and responsibility to interrupt and correct if somebody got it wrong. Let's flip the page. What about the literary genre? Maybe the gospel writers thought they were writing extended parables. Well, let's read what the one of them who in the most detail tells us he thought he was doing had to say. 
And you can read that faster than I can read it out loud. But that's the kind of opening, prologue, or preface that you find, often a lot longer, in the most responsible and accurate of ancient historians, like Josephus in the first century in the Jewish world, like Herodotus and Thucydides several centuries before Christ in the Greek world. This is how you told an audience you were writing history. Somebody says, well, what if it was a historical novel? What if this was all a setup to fool people into thinking? It's theoretically possible, but if it is, it's the oldest known example of anybody doing that by about 1,700 years. Historical novels as we think of them are quite recent inventions in the history of literature. There were a few fictional stories in the ancient world that built on names of real people and real places, but they always tipped their hands by including people and places that if anybody knew what was going on would say, wait a minute, Nebuchadnezzar cannot be the enemy king in the second century <coughs> BC. <laughs> That's five centuries too late. There are hard sayings and missing topics in the Gospels like hate your father and mother. Kids don't get the wrong idea. <laughs> well, fortunately, there's a parallel in Matthew that says whoever does not love God far more than father, mother, brothers, and sisters is not worthy of me. But why didn't Luke feel free to revise that or just leave it out? Unless there were some constraints. Jesus didn't even know the time of his return and the limitations of his earthly life. Wait a minute, wasn't he God? Oh, yeah, but, you know, he wasn't omnipresent either while he was on earth. There were no stories of two Jesus sightings at the same time in towns 500 miles apart. <laughs> we can explain it, but the early church was so concerned to glorify and exalt and magnify Jesus, they wouldn't have made up something that was more awkward. Where is Jesus teaching on circumcision? You say, well, why would he talk about that? Oh, because as soon as the gospel went outside of Jewish circles, Adult Greek and Roman men, uncircumcised in a world without anesthesia, with some Jews telling them, you want to be a true believer, you got to follow Jesus and obey the law and submit to the knife. Um, suddenly there's a lot at stake. Why didn't somebody quote Jesus? Apparently never said anything about the topic. Well then, why didn't he make why didn't somebody make something up? If they were so felt so free to make stuff up, apparently they weren't so free. What about speaking in tongues that threatened to split the church in Corinth? What did Jesus think about that? 
Corinthians, 1 Corinthians is the letter that more often than not quotes or alludes to sayings of Jesus half a dozen times throughout the book. Where's his teaching on tongues? Apparently nobody had ever heard of any or felt free to make it up. For some people, though, what it boils down to is what non-Christian authors said about Jesus. There's always the chance that some Christian could be lying. As if there's never a chance that a non-Christian could be lying. But okay, let's, for the sake of argument, um, two key references in Josephus, end of the first century, half a dozen texts in the, the rabbinic literature called the Talmud in the Greek world, Lysian, Mara Ben Serapion, I know their household names in the Roman world, Thallus, Suetonius, Tacitus, Pliny. Put all that together and create a composite, and the result is something like this, without citing a Christian source anywhere. Jesus was a Jewish man who lived in the first third of the first century. He was born out of wedlock. He had disciples when he grew up. Five of them are named. He was well known for teaching that constantly challenged the conventional teachers of the Jewish law and their interpretations. His ministry intersected with that of a man named John who baptized people for the repentance of sins. He had a brother named James. He was believed by his followers to be the Messiah, particularly because he did wondrous deeds, a term that seems to refer to miracles. And he was eventually arrested, crucified under Pontius Pilate. That narrows the time gap to 26 to 36 AD. And yet, despite that fact, his followers claimed to see him alive and soon began to meet on a regular basis and worship and sing hymns to him as if he were a god. Now, that's nowhere near the amount of detail we find in the Gospels, but it's a heckload more than the blog sites that say, we don't have any reliable non-Christian evidence. That's just wrong. And usually people who say that know they're wrong. It's deliberately being duplicitous. They have an ax to grind. Other people, they just want rock solid evidence. The evidence of the rocks. Archaeological <laughs> discoveries. You can buy whole big books with nothing but the archaeology of Israel that impinges on the life of Jesus. hundred years ago, nobody was sure the pools of Bethesda and Siloam ever existed in Jerusalem, and then they dug them up. And in 1961, we found the first inscription to the existence of Pontius Pilate. And in 1968, we found the first evidence of a, a crucified man's... Uh, bone box where the, the ankle bone was nailed to a piece of wood. We, we had never found nails on, on ankles before. And in 1986, a first century boat 
after a record drought, came up to the surface of the Sea of Galilee. And you can go to a museum to this day that was built around this one artifact, the boat. And then you have a deli, and then you have a place that tells the story, and then you have a place that has the video about the archaeologists and what they did, and then you have the room with the pictures of all the archaeologists and what they did. And the Israeli authorities knew how to draw Christian dollars, shekels from all over the world. They dubbed it the Jesus Boat. Nobody knows whose boat it was. <laughs> but it was the largest boat, just big enough to hold about 13 small men. When you realize that the average man in the first century was 5'4 and 140 pounds, average woman was 5 foot and 100 pounds, they didn't eat as well as we do. <laughs> or have nutrition or stay healthy. Could have been his boat. Odds are against it. 1990, we found Caiaphas's tomb. In the uh, early 2000s, the internet was abuzz with debates over this ossuary, this bone box, where after coffins had been uh, in the ground a year or so, they would exhume them, there would just be the bones left, they'd put them in a smaller box, rebury them, recycle the land, get more people in there. Um, and it had inscribed in Hebrew on it, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. Too good to be true and all kinds of claims of fabrication and later people adding writing circulated and the lead archeologist who had presented this to the world was taken to court in Israel and 10 years later, you think our courts are slow. <laughs> he was exonerated of every charge. Funny, I don't remember that on the internet. <laughs> Does that prove it's James Oshore? No. But it means all the objections have been found to be groundless. A first century home in Nazareth, 2009, had to have been Jesus. No, no, we don't know. And much, much more. Well, I'm a couple minutes over. You knew it would happen. Elliot knew, he's had me in class. I always say it's for the students who come in late. I want to give them their money's worth. <laughs> Paul in 1 Corinthians says, I received what I passed on to you. Those are verbs in Greek and also in Hebrew that are used as a pair in contexts that refer to the faithful transmission of oral tradition. Something that uh, was of first importance or the footnote in the NIV reminds me it could also be translated at the first. It seems that this was a, a kind of a creed or confession of faith 
of Jesus' death, burial, and then all the people he appeared to that was one of the first things that was taught to Christians when they became followers of Jesus. Perhaps Paul himself, which would put this back into the 30s. There's a German atheist, but he's a responsible enough historian, a man named Gerd Ludemann, who wrote a book saying what really happened at the resurrection. And he said, all this stuff about a slowly evolving legend is, well, this is my word, not his, poppycock. <laughs> Foolishness. Jesus' followers within a couple years, at the most, of his death believed that they had seen him alive again. He said, well, why is he an atheist? Well, he goes on to say, of course we know it couldn't have happened. <laughs> so it must have been some subjective vision. He resists the word hallucination, but kind of moves us in that direction. We really have, <laughs> bouncing in, three ways to think about Christian faith. I like to think about track and field sport of a long jump. The skeptics of our world would say people who have faith have faith in spite of the evidence. Kind of like somebody who runs down that line to where you have to jump and in the world's greatest feat of contortion screeches to a stop like the roadrunner was so good at doing when Coyote kept on going and then hurls their body back in the other direction and sees how far they can get. Believe despite the momentum that's being built up by the historical evidence. Then there's what you can do at the Denver Zoo, you know, where they have the different size animals and you don't get any buildup at all and you just start out and see how far you can jump from a standing position. Little kids discover, ooh, I'm an ocelot, or whatever. <laughs> Probably not that much. Or you do what we watch in the Olympics, or if your son or daughter did it in high school or college. The historical evidence, I would argue, propels you a long ways towards the sand. But you can't walk to it. At some point, you have to take a leap of faith, but it's a jump in the direction that all the momentum has been propelling you. We've still got a good chunk of time. I've got some notes for uh, further reading, some very simple books. The simplest one there is the one by Daryl Bach. Um, most of them are sort of first year seminary level textbooks or upper division college level textbooks. And the series edited by Charlesworth Ray and Picorni is for Larry, Nick, and any other scholars in the room of uh, more technical articles. What do you want to talk about? Any question? 
as long as it's somehow related, is fair game. So is there non-religious literature or documents that are were both fake news that just flat out came and said, this Jesus of Nazareth is all fake? You mean in the ancient world? Yes. None. Nowhere. So, so there's no Roman literature where the Romans or anybody came out and said, None. This, this is all fake news. Not one. Which is rather remarkable, if there was any chance it was. In the Jewish literature, the most common explanation, you find it about three or four different times, is he was a sorcerer, a magician who led Israel astray, almost acknowledging that he was a miracle worker. But you know, miracles can come from a couple different sources. <laughs> Sir? It does. Uh, it's also about three times as long, but uh, it's worth it. Yeah. Um, in terms of the topics covered, uh, you don't want to use his numbers for how many manuscripts we have for different things because countless more have been found in the years since. But in terms of the kind of ways he argues, yeah. Please. Since Paul's writings make up about half the New Testament. It's true. What was the quality of his letters uh, that he copied, or just how does that go compared to the writers of the Gospels? Almost as good. Um, the real places where at times maybe it's because uh, something that was the entire New Testament, an open end of the scroll that got torn off. Um, beginnings and ends of things tend to be more subject to damage than the middle. Um, so when you get to the little letters that aren't Paul's letters towards the end, you sometimes don't have as complete copies. Um, and Paul does have a few little letters <laughs> by Lehman. Oops, pages stuck together, missed it. <laughs> um, so it's not quite as strong as the Gospels, but still very, 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 very strong. <laughs> yeah? Can you talk a little bit about the first Council of Nicaea and what happened there? Kind of an <laughs> a bunch of people got together and I had another doctorate to do, <laughs> I would cry. Um, <laughs> one of the things I would be interested in researching is if there ever has been a phenomenon like the Da Vinci Code. I challenge you, I'll buy you a fancy dinner if you come through within reason. <laughs> <laughs>
I'll buy you dinner at a place I've heard of in Denver. <laughs> if you can find prior to 2003 a source that says the Nicene Council was all about choosing the books of the New Testament. If you have ever been in a Catholic, Episcopal, Anglican, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Methodist church, you probably recited, maybe even memorized the Nicene Creed. I always get it mixed up with the Apostles because <laughs> as a Lutheran growing up, we said the Apostles' Creed every Sunday, but only on the one Sunday a month we had communion, then we substituted the Nicene Creed. But it has three parts to it, according to the three persons of the Trinity. I believe in God the Father, Lord of heaven and earth, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. I'm sure I left something out. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was be, and, and so forth, born of virgin, suffering under Pontius Pilate. I believe in the Holy Spirit. The Nicene Creed did, on the side, commission a guy named Eusebius to uh, produce 50 very nice copies of the New Testament for bishops around the empire who didn't have them. There was not a thing at Nicaea about choosing the books of Old or New Testament. Dan Brown made it up in the Da Vinci Code. And I have repeatedly had seminary students tell me their undergraduate professors of religion taught them that. They don't even know any better. Has there ever been such a hoax in the history of Christianity? I don't know. It worked. Thank goodness the movie bombed, because then everybody stopped talking about it, or we might still be. <laughs> yeah. And then we'll come up to the front. What do you think the book of Revelation is? I like Origen's comment, God only knows. <laughs> if you go to the ancient suggestions that people in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th century made, every one of them is a companion of Paul, if it's not Paul himself. So there's clearly that link. You say, well, we don't know for sure. How can it have apostolic authority? The same way Mark did. The same way Luke did. Mark was a close companion of Peter. Luke was a close companion of wasn't Paul. People suggested Apollos, Luke, Silas, Barnabas, but all of them had close links to Paul. Timothy, speak to me. Oh, right here. Some of the uh, other Gospels, the, yeah. the Gnostics and so on, why do you suppose they were written? Were they, were they trying to be historical or hysterical or, or what? No. Um, there's only one of them that even remotely resembles our Gospels, and that's the so-called 
second century, mid-second century, the earliest Gospel of Thomas, which is a collection of sayings, 114 consecutive sayings of Jesus, often with no narrative connection between them. So it's, it's not a story. Um, but a number of those do resemble what we find in the Gospels. And some of them are quite different, very, very Gnostic uh, in nature. But all the other um, Gospels, the, the apocryphal Gospels, are either filling in the gaps. What was Jesus like as a boy? <laughs> and usually the answer is kind of like Robin of Batman, the boy wonder. <laughs> um, what happened when Christ descended into hell? Ooh, that's an exciting story. Made up. Um, or they are Jesus discoursing on the mysteries of the universe and the cosmic relationship between angels and demons and other supernatural powers that Gnostics were interested in that bears no relationship to the, the New Testament at all. Somebody quoted F.F. F. Bruce, and Bruce, when he was alive, liked to say, the best disproof of the value of the, the apocryphal gospels is just read them. Most, most people that think they want to support them have never read them. <laughs> you can find all of them online, multiple translations. And uh, yeah, the, the Gnostic ones were written to try to justify Gnosticism. How are you going to do that when Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John already exist and have nothing that hints at it? Light bulb. We'll write the story sayings, and then we'll say that most people never heard this. Jesus told it privately after his resurrection to one or two select people, and it fooled a few. <laughs> fooled more people in the 21st century than did back then. <laughs> Had a lot of men talk. Did they not let the women talk? <laughs> <laughs> There's a website that, uh, there's more than one website that uh, if you Google the right things, you can, can stumble across. And it's usually billed as first century histories that say nothing about Jesus. A couple dozen of them. He couldn't possibly exist, have existed all this stuff neglected them all together. Well, on the list is Pausanias's geography of the ancient world. Of course, they don't tell the names of the works, they just give the author. Um, there's a botanist on there. Um, a lot of people were writing about what was going on in Rome and the emperors their lives. 
A lot of people were writing about the lives of eminent philosophers in Greece and Rome. Last time I checked, Jesus doesn't remotely qualify. Barely ever left Israel. Um, there were romances. There were books of Proverbs being written. There were songbooks being written. Um, there were adventure stories being written. down that one particular list and about half of it are people who wrote somewhere else in the empire well before 50 AD <coughs> before we even know the gospel ever got there so in the ancient world you don't really want to ask about first century sources <laughs> you want to ask about slightly later sources by the time the word is spread it reminds me of, I, I, more than once in my life, I've seen somebody post this. Uh, on July 4th, 1776, King George III of England wrote in his journal, nothing of moment happened today. <laughs> well, of course he did. It would be weeks before he'd hear about what happened. <laughs> Duh! <laughs> Think like a historian. Oh, by the way, let me put my Christian hat back on before I forget it. <laughs> yes? Can you talk just a little bit about the canonization process? The hardest part of that question is just a little bit. Um, <laughs> that's another whole talk. Um, yeah, it started early, built up gradually. Second century Christian sources start <coughs> quoting New Testament books as if they were more authoritative than other things. Start calling them scripture, but all we can do is say, okay, so that means this author thought this passage out of this book was scripture, and maybe he thought the whole book was, but and then by the middle of the second century, we have been able to recover lists of books that uh, may not have been any attempt to be comprehensive, but just saying we're confident that these sources are uniquely of God, and authoritative, inspired. Um, one of the fascinating things is that from almost the earliest lists on, very rarely does anybody not say Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and all the letters of Paul. Where there was question in the middle, late second century, on in a little bit to the third century, <coughs> were Hebrews because nobody knew who wrote it, for sure. James, because Martin Luther was not the first person to wonder if James contradicted Paul on faith and works. Um, second Peter, because the style of the Greek was totally unlike that of the first, of first Peter. Second John, third John, and Jude, because they're really short. Are they really timeless? 
and the book of Revelation, because what do you do with it? <laughs> Those were the seven that had some questions attached, but by the time you get to 363, a bishop by the name of Athanasius at Easter sent out an encyclical like Catholic bishops do to this day throughout the empire and referred to the 27 books we have by name as what everybody everywhere agrees on. Well, that was a little exaggerated because there were still some Gnostics around, but uh, that was his way of making the point. The councils that ratified that were not Nicaea in 325, but the councils in the North African cities of Carthage and Hippo. Yes, there was such a city, Hippo. Um, <laughs> Hippo means horse. Um, hippopotamus means river horse. You knew that, right. Okay. Um, and so in the 390s, you get uh, more formal councils uh, ratifying the 27. That's about as short as I can make it. <laughs> Holy cow, when did it get to be 8 o'clock? If you need to go, just go. Larry, if you need to come up here and bring this to a close, just do so. If not, keep going. Oh, he's coming. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, any last questions? Would you join me in thanking Dr. Craig Roberts? Next Wednesday night at 6.30, uh, Dr. Janelle Hallman will be here and to talk about understanding and loving the transgendered. So uh, we want to invite you back. So Can I give an advertisement and possibly steal one point of her thunder? Yes. Did you know that about one of every 10,000 babies born in this country have gender ambiguity in their genitalia? Did you know that most medical doctors routinely make no attempt to determine if this was supposed to be a boy or a girl, but simply produce the surgery to turn them into girls? I didn't know that until Janelle Hallman taught us that at a faculty forum one year ago. That makes the issue a little more complicated. Yes, it does. I won't steal any more thunder. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again, Craig. The peace of Christ.